1: turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org
2: for more info now. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no sign-ups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com com or download from the app and google play stores today all you can stream with zumo play
3: are you on the hunt for a new home this spring
5: Hi, I'm Chelsea Clinton, and this is the very first episode of my new podcast, In Fact. In the midst of COVID-19, more people than ever before are paying attention to public health. But COVID-19 isn't the only public health issue that we're facing currently. Now, before you say, oh, I'm just sick of thinking about this, as someone who's studied and works on these issues, they impact us all and talking about them doesn't have to feel like health class. So in this podcast, I'm talking to and learning from smart people, advocates, patients, experts, and more about other public health issues from climate change to reproductive rights to HIV-AIDS, to understand those crises, what we're doing about them, and what they can teach us about COVID-19 and our response, or lack thereof at times. Today, we're talking about one of the very first public health issues that ever captured my attention back when I was a kid in Little Rock, Arkansas, the HIV-AIDS epidemic. When HIV was first identified in the early 1980s, it was a public health crisis mired in urgent scientific questions. How was it transmitted? What were the short and long-term symptoms? Could it be treated? And then there was also stigma and bigotry, which were claustrophobic and deadly. Homophobia, racism, and shame around sex, to name only a few examples, combined with a woefully inadequate response from our government, made the epidemic even more deadly. Today, We know how to help prevent new HIV infections, and we have medicines to render AIDS a chronic disease and make HIV itself untransmittable. Still, thousands of Americans acquire HIV every year. Millions of people around the world don't have access to treatment, and stigma remains dangerous, even deadly, across our country and around the globe. That's part of what we'll be talking about today. We'll hear from Queer Eyes, Jonathan Van Ness, who has been a vocal advocate for people living with HIV-AIDS since publicly sharing his own HIV-positive status in 2019. And we'll listen to Dr. Oni Blackstock, an HIV physician and health equity advocate working here in New York City, talk about her experiences on the front line. But first, we'll hear from someone who got his start as an activist and member of the group ACT UP back in the 1980s, Peter Staley. More than 30 years ago, Peter and other LGBTQ activists demanded a response from our government on AIDS, and they refused to be silenced even when confronted with disdain, disinterests, and arrests. Their rallying cry was silence equals death. Peter and ACT UP's work helped move attention, research dollars, and urgency, and certainly helped save lives. In the decades since, he has continued his activism, working to fight stigma, help people get the education and care they deserve, and push for broader awareness of what still needs to be done. Peter, thank you so much for your time today.
6: It's great to be with you, Chelsea, and especially to talk about public health and all the craziness we're going through right now and uh, ways to make a difference.
5: And so, Peter, I really did first become public health aware. Arguably, I I first became kind of citizen aware, reading about HIV and AIDS in my local newspapers in Arkansas and then Watching, you know, Magic Johnson courageously talk about his HIV status as a middle school kid in Little Rock, could you just take us a little bit back to those early days and what it was like, what the barriers you really faced were, and why you had to fight so hard to draw attention and resources to the AIDS crisis?
6: Well, I was a closeted bond trader on Wall Street when the first cases of HIV AIDS were reported in the summer of 1981, and like many, I didn't know what was going on and noticed right away that the response that was occurring by politicians, etc., was very wrapped up in the homophobia I sensed that was systemic in America from my first sense of my own gayness in my teens. And so I not only was actively suppressing and hiding a big part of myself, I kind of did everything I could to suppress and ignore the early years of the AIDS crisis until I myself got diagnosed in 1985. But as we recall, in that year, there was no way of ignoring it. The country finally woke up in an actually very frightening and terrible way because Rock Hudson was diagnosed and later died that fall and the nation went into this panic, very much like Ebola, where there was just extraordinary levels of stigma. Parents were pulling their children out of schools, if there were rumors of another child having HIV and the homophobia was only getting worse. I mean, the backlash against us was getting extraordinarily frightening, making our community kind of stumble out of the gate as to you know, how do we respond to this in this environment without a violent response being met against us. And so it took the gay community a long time to respond to this, but we had an administration that wanted nothing to do with this crisis
5: Well, Peter, an administration that also didn't even name the crisis.
6: Reagan didn't say the word AIDS until 85, I think, only because he was asked by a member of the press. And then he didn't actually speak to it formally until 87. That is six years into an epidemic, just total ignoring.
5: Well, Peter, we have lived through, though, an administration under Trump that certainly did tell us repeatedly it was going to disappear. Right. So kind of willfully trying to hasten its end.
6: And it was very triggering watching COVID roll out in January and February in the U.S. The similarities to those early AIDS years where you had two presidents, both very anti-science, Both coming into office with a core constituency of the religious right. In Reagan's situation, it was the moral majority. And because of that, just not listening to the scientists, beginning to take anti science political postures about the epidemic and missing the opportunity very early on to nip the new epidemic in the bud. And the sad fact of this is when epidemics hit anywhere in the world, 90% of what a leader needs to do has to happen in the first weeks, months, definitely first year, even with a slow-moving virus like HIV. And if you miss that window, you allow an epidemic to occur. If you do what Taiwan did and a few other places of jumping right in, right at the beginning, you can stop it in its tracks and save yourself all the pain down the line. And all we witnessed in January and February was a dismissiveness of the responsibility to do that. And we watched the virus just flood America because of that dismissiveness. I think what we have seen is basically one of our two major parties begin during the early 80s a long process of abandoning basic facts that both parties used to always accept and then debate and take different sides on. But those basic facts got confronted and eventually abandoned by one of our major parties. It's rejecting facts all over the place.
5: Alongside the rejection of facts, one of those anti-democratic means and mechanisms really is stigma. And certainly we saw how deadly stigma very much was in the 1980s, and I think arguably still true today as it relates to HIV-AIDS. We're also seeing... I think the real challenge of what stigma is and means during COVID. How do we not demonize people who are making not great choices around mask wearing or social distancing, as one example, while still trying to persuade them to wear masks and social distance? Can you just talk about, reflect on how you both worked against stigma, but also tried to help people understand? there really is a difference between good and not good choices.
6: Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, HIV stigma has probably been the most persistent and severe disease-related stigma that the world has ever seen. It's been very hard to fight, very depressing. I have been buoyed in the last decade, I guess, at how we're making a little bit of progress against AIDS stigma in the U.S. and around the world Mostly because of the big scientific victories we've had, and really driving home those tools and coupling it with the message that stigma doesn't fit into this picture anymore. We're slowly whittling away at it with science and a clear public health message that you just deliver day after day after day. We have the potential to do the same with COVID by having from the very top, from the president on down, through all the public health officials, staying on the exact same message and just sticking with it hour after hour, day after day. This is what works. This is how we do this together. If we do that, then we can let go of some of our less helpful tools, which is finger wagging and people screaming at each other we know from decades of social science that the social shaming side of public health is the least effective.
5: It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Part of your real early work and ACT UP New York's early work and so many others was both to hold the government accountable for what they weren't doing and also to start to shift public opinion that your lives had value. Can you just talk about how you work to both hold the government accountable and shift public opinion?
6: It was a very frightening job in front of ACT UP when we burst on the scene in 1987. The backlash against the queer community in the U.S. had only gotten worse because of AIDS. And that's when ACT UP came on the scene. And we realized we weren't going to be able to get anything out of the U.S. government unless we changed hearts and minds in America how are we going to do that? The way we did it was risking it all. We decided to put our bodies on the line to make ourselves the number one target of attention in America. They had never seen the queer community protest en masse week after week after week. Stonewall wasn't televised. (laughs) It got very little press. Nobody heard about it at the time. And by the hundreds, we got arrested, and it was the lead story on all three networks. And we became, at that moment, America's movement du jour. We were like the Black Lives Matter or Occupy of our time. And we shattered the American myth of the homosexual as being weak and timid and afraid and cowering in a corner. What they saw instead was passion and determination and they saw community. The press wrapped our activism and used it as B-roll for stories about all the groups we had formed to take care of our dead and dying. And they told the American people that the reason we had to do that was because the government had totally ignored us. And within months, the American public, they may not have loved The gay community. (laughs) You know, it it wasn't going to happen that fast. Acceptance wasn't going to happen overnight. But they felt deep shame when they realized finally that they were letting thousands of their own citizens die and just letting it happen because they didn't care. And that guilt trip changed everything. Polling almost overnight showed that 80% of Americans wanted Reagan and then Bush to spend more on AIDS research you can't get 80% of Americans to agree on anything these days. (laughs) That was, uh, that shift. And you also saw the Gallup poll, the level of Americans who thought gays should be thrown in jail, that number collapsed 21% between two data points, between 88 and 89. And you just don't see poll shifts like that anymore. And within two years of that, Congress was appropriating, and Reagan and Bush were approving hundreds of millions of dollars of increases in the AIDS research budget. It reached $1 billion a year by 1990, and other disease groups were complaining about a powerful AIDS lobby. And then we got your father coming into office who fully leveraged all those dollars and put them to work during the 90s, aggressively spending that on research in the most effective ways to the point where, by the end of his first term, we had this amazing breakthrough And it's the reason I'm I'm on your show today, the reason all of us are alive, because of those tax dollars that we loosened up. So that's how you do it.
5: You've been in this work for 35 plus years. What keeps you going? How do you keep going?
6: Yeah, you know, I got into ACT UP right after its first demonstration because I had been diagnosed a year and a half earlier. And I came to it was such selfish, reason, you know, it, it, very human. I, I just want I wanted to see if I could save myself, buy myself a little time, add a few months to my lifespan. But within six months of being in that room on the first floor of the Lesbian and Gay Community Center on West Thirteenth Street in New York City, with hundreds of other activists fighting for their lives and the lives of their friends. I got bitten by another bug. And that was this beautiful movement, empathy of fighting for the greater good, fighting for something more than yourself. And I got to witness all that. I got to witness actually victories and and witness lives being saved as a result of activism. Once you you feel that feeling, (laughs) once you're part of that, being part of a community that gets a kind of high out of changing the world for the better uh, there's no turning back and and it's wonderful to see today's younger generations because they they you know something got ingrained in them where they've got the empathy right up front it's their innate empathy and their frustration with the world's problems that give me hope that we can solve them because everybody's adding a little activism into their lives now and realizing that they feel better when they're able to help others and do work that serves the greater good.
5: Peter Staley, thank you so much for your time today.
6: Thank you, Chelsea.
5: You can keep up with Peter on Twitter. He's at Peter Staley. We're taking a quick break. Stay with us.
2: All you can stream with Zumo Play.
3: Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring?
5: A lot has changed since Peter first got his start as an activist. Today, we know more about prevention and treatment is more readily available to more people, including antiretroviral therapy, or ART, which keeps viral load at an undetectable level and makes the virus untransmittable. But we still have so much more to do, including on fighting stigma, myths, and misinformation. That's why I'm so thankful to today's next guest. He's one of the 1.2 million people in the US living with HIV AIDS. And he's done so much to shatter stigma, educate people about HIV and AIDS, and honestly and joyfully tell his own story. I'm talking about the one and the only Jonathan Van Ness. Jonathan has famously helped people to be their own best selves on Netflix, Queer Eye. He has his own podcast, which is one of the best titles around, Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness, and he shared his story, including his HIV diagnosis, in his autobiography, which is called Over the Top, A Raw Journey to Self-Love. Jonathan, thank you so much for talking with me today. I've been really excited about this conversation.
8: Oh, my gosh. Well, thanks so much for having me. And, you know, wherever our conversation goes, I'm here for it. But I just would be remiss if I did not mention it at the top. Big fan. Love your dad. Love your mom. Really excited to meet you. I've been, like, obsessed with you and your hair since uh, literally 1994. (laughs) Your curls have always been giving me life, and I just can't believe that we're getting to, like, chat right now. And yeah, so love you to pieces. I'm so excited that I'm here.
2: I'm,
5: like, my smile is, like, bursting off of my face. Well, my, my hair, like, is many stories in and of itself, but that's a different conversation. So I'm a few years older than you, but we both grew up, like, in the 80s and the 90s. And I remember learning about HIV, like as a kid in Arkansas. And then I really remember when Magic Johnson so courageously and heroically spoke about being HIV positive. Do you have moments like I had when I was a kid watching Magic Johnson that really stood out to you as people who were living with this disease and in their own way, helping to stand up against the stigma of the disease?
8: Yeah, I remember very clearly the first time I ever heard about it, and it was my oldest brother telling us at the dinner table what he'd learned about it at school. There's this thing, and it's called HIV-AIDS, and it kills men who have sex with men.
5: That's what your brother was learning in school.
8: Yeah, men who have sex with men and drug users. And so, you know, when I heard that, I was like, oh, God, like, I mean, I think it was just at a time where I was like, could I be gay? What is gay? Am I different than everyone else? So I think from a very early age, it was like, it's going to kill me. And, you know, as I got a little bit older, that only became more solidified. And I think... You know, one thing that unfortunately happened in the 90s, and I think for me, the another time when, you know, my Magic Johnson moment, obviously this may surprise you, but I'm not the biggest basketball fan. While everyone was talking about the dream team in Barcelona, I was talking about Shannon Miller and how she should have won the fucking gold. Agreed. But, you know, she got second, a very close second. But that was also the first time the United States gymnastics team won a team medal. It was a gorgeous bronze in Barcelona. It was very epic. And so that's what I was glued to in 92. And then 1996, Rudy Galindo won the United States Men's Figure Skating Competition, and he was living with HIV, and he talked about that. I remember in this, like, segment that year, and he—it was just very ahead of his time for someone to, you know, be an athlete who was winning nationals and— at least for me, I mean, because it was new to me, I, you know, again, I didn't really watch basketball. So it was like magic. It was Rudy Galindo for me in 1996. And he was just incredible. And I think that was, you know, again, years before I was understanding what my sexual orientation meant. And I do think that unfortunately in the nineties, you had this like incredibly homophobic time. And there was just such a pervasive idea that, this was God's punishment. This was people bringing it upon themselves. Just a very heartless response. And I think one thing that has been disappointing for me is is that realizing how much ignorance and stigma there still is and how comfortable folks are to still share that with me, other people, there's just still a pervasive, mean-spirited ignorance that exists around HIV, and also, not that you asked for to say it, one thing that I've noticed through this coronavirus epidemic is I get curious about, like, there were laws that were criminalizing potential spread of HIV not long after the discovery of HIV.
5: It was less than a decade ago when the Obama administration finally removed the prohibition of HIV-positive people from entering the United States if you weren't an American citizen, right? Which is a mind-boggling, I think, data point.
8: Well, here's something that's mind-boggling, I think, that has given me a lot of trauma. And it's something that I think about a lot. The day that I found out I was positive in the state of Missouri, I had to sign a piece of paper that said that I was a bioterrorist if I ever knowingly spread the disease. And there are laws on the books all over this country that could be horribly used against someone who that's living with HIV, despite if they disclosed, no one should be out knowingly spreading HIV. That would be like a horrible thing to do. But what we know about medication and antiretroviral therapy—that when someone who's living with HIV achieves and maintains an undetectable viral load, you are not passing your virus. You're
5: not transmissible. Yeah,
8: you're—you know—undetectable equals untransmittable. So these draconian laws that are on all these state books that and oftentimes are in you know conservative, controlled legislatures where homophobia and transphobia and racism are so rampant and so commonplace, there's just no explanation and understanding. And I've heard people say just such horrifically uneducated things. One of my really close family friends once said to me, you know, this is in California, legal marijuana. And this family friend like was, oh my God, my stomach hurts, like my stomach. And I was like, girl, take a hit of this joint. Like you'll feel so much better to like calm your stomach right down. You can go get yourself a little biscuit or a little treat afterwards. You'll feel amazing. And without skipping a beat, this family friend, this person who I had known, my entire life before hiv after hiv crying on shoulders you know learning to live with this disease going through all the things i had to go through and this was in 2015 i remember because i haven't talked to the person since it's like such a like it was just such a hurtful thing but looked at me you know straight in the face and was like well I can't i can't get hiv from sharing this with you can i just not having a grasp of what living with HIV looks like. One of the first things that I learned on the day that I well, was my first long form doctor's appointment. I said to her, I talk about this in my book, the doctor, I said, can I still live to be 75? And she laughed to herself and she was this really fierce Filipino doctor. And she had like a little accent and she chuckled and she said, honey, I'll keep you alive long enough to die of a heart attack or cancer like everybody else. You know, I've been on medication for like almost 10 years and I've only gotten more fit, more gorgeous, like work all the time. Like, I mean, when she said that all, you know, 50 to 75 years, I mean, that is a normal life expectancy anyway. I was 25, like 50 to 75 more years, honey, sign me up. Other than taking this pill every day and making sure I see my doctor every three months, I feel amazing. I'm much healthier now than I was literally when I was HIV negative careening down the road of like addiction and self-destructive behavior. So it's just made out to be this gigantic deal. And, And again, I don't, I wouldn't recommend it. It was definitely cuter, like not having to go to the doctor every three months and take a pill every day and the rigmarole of having to get it, but your life isn't over. It doesn't make you this different person that can't do anything. And as long as you have your pill and your doctor, it's great, you're never better.
5: What do you think we can do to try to help people who think they're on the side of allyship and the side of like really being in solidarity, kind of recognize that sometimes the posture, the language they're using is still stigmatizing and harmful and probably not the behavior they want to be engaging in. What do you think we do about that?
8: Well, I obviously didn't get into where I am now and get the recovery that I've gotten because like alone, I had a lot of support. I had access through my family to actual capital and also social capital to give me the wherewithal to understand like how to navigate this very layered, intricate process of attaining healthcare. I mean, even from just like when the Affordable Care Act came out and I signed up for it for the first time, like I needed my mom to help me with that. Like I'm not someone who you know, can't figure stuff out. I mean, I could do like 10 heads of hair in a day. I'm like pretty savvy. But like when that came out, just like figuring out how to do that, like, well, what's a silver mean? What's a bronze mean? Is that going to cover my HIV medication? Is it not like, will it? And that was after I had a couple years of recovery under my belt. And I just think that you're not going to necessarily get JVN 10 years into their recovery journey. We really need to meet people where they are and stop this like judgment and morality idea of like, well, pull yourself up by the bootstrings. And I just think that there is this knee jerk reaction for people to say like, well, I can't tell you how many times I've heard when I've said, you know, when I am lobbying and working on expanding the HIV social safety net, people are like, well, that's all great, but I didn't go get you HIV. And so people just don't want to take responsibility for something that they think doesn't affect them. And then they want to take it out on people that are already suffering. And I think that when you look at something like HIV, it is a result of coordinated neglect. I see such an overemphasis on how do we keep HIV negative people negative? But what about the 1.2 million people living with HIV? What about the people who have to choose between housing and their medication? When you tie it to this idea of morality that it's been so inextricably tied to, I just, I almost don't even know what we need to do. I'm so frustrated and tired because I thought that, you know, me coming out with my status was going to be the hardest part. And I think actually the hardest part has been, frankly, how fucking heartless people still are around what it is to live with HIV AIDS.
5: Have you had people now tell you that your sharing your status helped them share theirs?
8: Oh, yes. That gets to me and makes me cry so much. The overwhelming support or where people will say like whether they encourage them to come out with their HIV status or someone read my book or encountered my story, which made them rethink a way that they've treated someone with HIV or wasn't open to someone or had an experience where they could have done better. That's also been really special. And actually this incredible woman, she was starting her first day at her local medical center. And she like, she took the training to like take blood and test people. And she works at this LGBTQ clinic. And she sent me this cute picture of like herself with her badge. And she was like, I started this training and got into this because of your book. And I just want to help people in my community. And I was like, Oh God, it's like the nicest thing he was ever said to me. So there is so much support and there is so much understanding. I I cannot believe how grateful I am and like how my life has changed. And like, it's just so amazing. But then I think there's just so many people who are still struggling that just do not see a way out. And I also think that for myself, another thing that makes me a little disappointed. I mean, I think before Queer Eye, I was doing good i was still you know i I still needed assistance i needed you know i needed help like my world wasn't falling apart you know i'd been doing good for a few years but what do you do like you shouldn't have to book a netflix show and become like a new york times bestseller in order to have really good insurance like i couldn't have like afforded to get a three thousand dollar bottle of medication at the because i lost one i just that's where it's like when I think about how grateful I am and how much my life has changed. And yes, I worked really hard and yes, like I didn't give up on myself. Nothing was really given super easily, but there are people that have way less than me and had nothing given to them in terms of social capital or like the help that I did have for my family. What are they supposed to do? Cause I did this with a lot of help. What do you do when you just don't have any help? I feel like I need like patience training, training, Because it's also like unwinding people's negative held beliefs and stigmas.
5: Like people's internalized stigmas.
8: Yeah. Because, I mean, people just have such strong internalized homophobia around this. People who lived through this pandemic in the early onsets of it, you know, we think about how scary... The last year was with the onset of coronavirus and the end of 2019, but like that was the case with HIV too. There was a lot of fear. The people that were heterosexual, cisgender people in in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s were just baked in this world where people could be contracting an illness and dead in their 20s, teens, 30s, dead. Families disowning them. Don't ever come home dead. When I was in eighth grade and told my dad I was gay, he said, don't come home with AIDS. And and that's not my dad being a bad person. That's what was on the news. We've all been front row to this horrific pain and suffering that had homophobia all ingrained in it. It had structural racism all ingrained in it and people still haven't really definitively taken the step so it's like for me when i hear the casual ignorance and the casual homophobia i just go like from 0 to 50 it's so hard because this is my lived experience and I have fought against this and people are still fighting against this. And so when you have elected leaders that are, you know, the Margie Taylor greens of the world, and then their constituents really believe this like highly radicalized religious propaganda rhetoric around like, you know, things such as HIV AIDS and abortion and, you know, just healthcare stuff, it, it really makes me lose my patience because there is such a disregard for humanity and for for people and just so much judgment. Like, I don't know how to get through that. And You know, we talk about like unity and we talk like how do we get forward and what do we do? It's like we have to reach people where they're at. It feels like it's a really difficult impasse. There is hope. There are good people doing good things, but then I don't know. I feel really stuck in some ways about it.
5: The burden shouldn't be on you to justify your humanity. I think that's a horrific framing that we too often have in our discourse and conversations where kind of people get other eyes and then somehow have to prove commonality and humanity and like assert dignity instead of it just being accorded to you because like that's the right place to begin. And I I hear you on the not finding unity with the people who don't recognize our humanity because I don't think you can compromise with bigotry. There's no compromise with people who don't think that you should have agency or freedom or life or health because of of who you are or what your HIV status is. So I'm not gonna argue that point, but I am gonna thank you for your time Uh, today.
8: Well, thank you for your time, Chelsea Clinton. Uh, I can't believe we got to meet you. Love so much, yay.
5: Jonathan's memoir is titled, Over the Top, A Raw Journey to Self-Love. And you can hear him on his podcast, Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness, and follow him at JVN. We're taking a quick break. Stay with us.
0: There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time.
2: All you can stream with Zumo Play.
3: Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring?
4: at purdueglobal.edu.
5: Over the last several decades, public perception of who is affected by HIV and AIDS has played a very real role in shaping the response, or lack thereof, to the virus. From Ryan White, a child from Indiana who was diagnosed with AIDS in the early 1980s, to fictional portrayals of people living with HIV and AIDS, often white gay men, in the 1990s, it matters whose story is told. The reality of HIV-AIDS in the US today is too often an untold story, and that's what our next guest, someone who works directly with communities and patients affected by HIV-AIDS, is here to talk about. Black Americans are disproportionately overrepresented in new HIV diagnoses and among people living with HIV and AIDS. According to the CDC, in 2018, Black Americans accounted for 42% of new HIV diagnoses, even though Black Americans make up only 13% of our population. It is indisputable that Black Americans face racism in public health and our medical system. HIV is only one example of this. The COVID 19 vaccine rollout has been another. Someone working hard to address these inequities is Dr. Oni Blackstock. Dr. Blackstock is a primary care and HIV physician and activist here in New York City. She's also the founder and executive director of Health Justice, an organization that works to center anti racism and equity in healthcare practice. Dr. Blackstock, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. While I know that you have quite a few family ties to medicine, I wonder if you could share why you became a doctor and also why you decided to focus your work on HIV-AIDS.
9: You know, my mother was born to a single mother. My mom really, you know, struggled a lot. She talked often of like having to put cardboard in the bottom of her shoes. My mother's mother really emphasized the importance of education. And my mom ended up going to Brooklyn College, where she had a professor who really took an interest in black and brown students and mentored them and encouraged them to pursue medicine as a career. She ended up coming back to New York City to do her residency at Harlem Hospital, which, you know, has really a legacy of training, like, generations of Black doctors. And then spent the bulk of her career in Central Brooklyn. I have a twin sister who's also a physician. Her name was Uche. You know, we accompanied our mom to, like, many community health fairs, and we saw the ways in which she married service and advocacy with medicine. And so, honestly, didn't really consider anything else. And while I was a medical student, ended up going to Ghana and doing work at a clinic called the Fever's Unit, which was this HIV clinic literally located outside of the hospital campus, like literally marginalized in the way that people who went to the clinic were marginalized. So I, you know, I studied how people in this part of Ghana were doing with their experience of taking their medication. What were their challenges And so, you know, when I came back from that experience, I actually did a rotation with the George Soros Open Society, where I rotated a number of HIV clinics throughout New York City and Harlem and East New York and Washington Heights, and basically just realized that there's a lot going on, obviously, in other countries that are less resourced, but there was a lot of work to be done here. In my residency at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, I saw patients with the same advanced AIDS opportunistic infections that I saw when I was in Ghana and South Africa. And I said, you know what, that compelled me to really focus on the work that needs to be done here. I think it can be very romantic and sexy to go to other countries and, and try to do work and help people. But I realized that the crisis here also merited my attention as well.
5: What, from your perspective as a practitioner, has changed in the last 35 years?
9: You know, HIV is one of those conditions that has like a 40-year lifespan, as as you mentioned. And so much has happened in those four decades. I think probably most prominently with respect to treatment, how treatment has become like much more simplified. You know, we have once a day pills that people can take that are very powerful. Whereas back in the beginning of the pandemic, people took multiple pills multiple times a day. So that has like helped to streamline things and I think helped to improve, for instance, adherence. We also have another powerful tool in pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, which is the once a day daily pill to prevent HIV infection. But even with those technological developments, we still have really stark inequities in who is impacted by HIV. And I think, at least for me, I see HIV not just as a medical condition, but as a social condition. It's really the lens through which I can see all of these different systems of oppression, racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, all really interacting. I don't think, I can't think of another condition that has such gross race, ethnic disparity. So when you look at, for instance, here in New York City, when we look at new HIV diagnoses, we look at diagnoses among women, for instance, that includes cisgender and transgender women. About 90% of new diagnoses are among Black and Latino women. And then about 80% are among Black and Latino men. And most of the men diagnosed with HIV are men who have sex with men. So we just see like the intersection of all these systems and the ways in which they place people you know, at risk for HIV. So I think that over these last few decades, like there's been a greater understanding of intersectionality, of the way these systems play a role, and that there, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to addressing the HIV epidemic. It's not just about popping a pill, whether it's HIV treatment or PrEP. We need to address issues around housing, around, you know, employment, food insecurity, all of that, all of those social determinants of health impact HIV
5: risk. Another, I think, real claustrophobic challenge here is the pernicious effects of stigma. Mm-hmm. When I was listening to Peter Staley, I thought, like, wow, like very similar, Dr. Blackstock, to what you're talking about. We've made so much progress, and yet we still have so much work to do on both the social vulnerabilities and social determinants that we know are intimately connected to someone's health, but also this miasma of stigma that still just seems so pervasive. Can you can you talk about how you sure. kind of see stigma in your patient care and also if you've seen ways to really push back against stigma that have worked?
9: Stigma around HIV specifically, I think, is somewhat unique. I think if, if there's any medical condition that is associated with such tremendous sort of internalized shame as as well as anticipated and enacted stigma, it's, it's probably HIV. And I think that has to do with who is most impacted by HIV. You know, the fact that men who have sex with men are most impacted, transgender women, people who inject drugs. And so those behaviors have been stigmatized by society and thus HIV has sort of like been pulled into that Um, You know, it comes up, for instance, like I have in some of my patients who have not disclosed or shared with any friends or family members their status, that they are HIV positive. And we know that just holding in that information has impacts on people's health. You know, it affects people's emotional well-being, but it also impacts their ability to take their medication every day and come to appointments it's really critical that we work to obviously destigmatize hiv and just to say that when i was i was assistant commissioner at the new york city health department up until this past july And in that role, I led the Bureau of HIV and the city's response to the HIV epidemic. And we launched a campaign called Made Equal, which is about promoting the message of undetectable equals untransmittable, which basically means, as I alluded to before, if someone is HIV positive, if they're taking their medications, if they're able to suppress that level of virus not only does that have impact on their own health, but it prevents HIV from being passed on to any of their sex partners. And so it was really important for us to do that campaign because, you know, we wanted people living with HIV who've often been portrayed as, you know, disease vectors and have a lot of internalized stigma to know that there aren't disease vectors, that they can have, you know, healthy, fulfilling relationships. And we also wanted people in the public to know that People with HIV who are on medication, who are suppressed, are very safe sex partners, at least with respect to HIV. So really spreading that message has helped. And I think also just destigmatizing some of the behaviors associated with HIV, right? So when we think about sexuality and how how it's important to, at least as a health department, when I was at the New York City Health Department, to be really sex positive and non-judgmental because there is such a great deal of stigma associated with just sex. And we know that sexual health is such an important part of overall health and well-being.
5: I know that you've worked on all of these related issues from your public service and the Department of Health here in New York City, through your practice and also through your organization, Health Justice. Could you talk a little bit about its work and its goals?
9: Sure. So my organization, it's a health equity consulting practice, and it's really focused on centering anti-racism and equity in the workplace and also helping organizations both public health and health care to reduce health inequities in the communities that they serve and A lot of my work at the health department, you know, revolved around advancing racial equity, gender equity, LGBTQ equity. And I got just really inspired to do that work at the health department on a a citywide level and decided my next step would be really focusing my career on helping to advance equity in public health and healthcare organizations. I think we've seen the impact of the pandemic in terms of really revealing a lot of existing inequities and also emerging inequities with respect to COVID. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I'm really interested in engaging with organizations that are ready to do that work.
5: Dr. Blackstock, I do, though, just want to ask you what it has been like over the last year, you know, as a HIV medicine practitioner caring for your patients during the COVID pandemic. How has it been different for you as a healthcare provider and how has your patient's experience been different?
9: What's been interesting is, you know, healthcare providers are learning along with the public about the you know, novel coronavirus. So I have to say, at the beginning of the pandemic, myself and my colleagues, we, you know, were very concerned about our safety and having obviously adequate PPE. For my patients, especially those who are older who lived through the early days of the AIDS epidemic, this has been for many very traumatizing experience. Many sort of remember the fear and vulnerability that they felt at that time. And many have drawn parallels to this current experience. I think, in the way that the pandemic has disproportionately impacted marginalized communities, in the way that the government response initially was inadequate and delayed, you know, there are just so many parallels that people see. And I think also the isolation. Many people living with HIV, especially people who are older, experience a great deal of social isolation in part because so many of their loved ones have passed away from HIV and they're kind of like the long-term survivors. And so this pandemic, I think, has sort of heightened that sense of being alone, having lost all these other people. So for, for me, my role has really been to try to support to the extent that I can, my patients, providing emotional support, referrals to you know mental health providers, behavioral health providers. But this has been challenging. I provide care in central Harlem, you know, which has a very high poverty rate my patients have really been directly impacted by this pandemic and have tried to also continue to take care of themselves at the same time.
5: Clearly this work is still vitally important today. How does that work continue in COVID-19 when we can't gather in shared communal space? How is that sense of shared community and continued trust able to persist while we're separate and apart, at least in a physical sense?
9: It's been very challenging. I think it's challenging for obviously people living with HIV and those who may be at risk to, you know, figure out how they can engage in care. The availability of appointments and other services are much more limited now. We've seen the ways in which we've kind of had to be nimble. For instance, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, a lot of organizations stopped doing community outreach work for fear, obviously, of exposing their employees When that happened, you know, HIV testing, for instance, became a lot less available. And so what we ended up doing when I was at the New York City Health Department last year, we actually ended up creating a home HIV test program where the community-based organizations, our partners that we work with, were able to give a home HIV test sent to them. So I think it's really, these are new times, so it's really about innovating and figuring out how we can leverage partnerships with community-based organizations and how they can also learn best practices from one another so that we can continue to ensure we've made a lot of progress towards ending the epidemic that we don't sort of reverse the progress that's been made so far.
5: You just spoke about the rise of at-home testing. I mean, not only for COVID-19, but also for at-home HIV testing and other STI testing. As we continue to hopefully move through and eventually move forward from COVID-19, What shifts have happened do you hope stay? What do you think still radically needs to change from a public health perspective?
9: People are probably very familiar with this, but just the increasing use of telehealth, for instance. Like, I don't know why before the pandemic we weren't leveraging it and using it, but the pandemic obviously has accelerated telehealth. And I think for many individuals who have, you know, access to a telephone or, um, you know, a, a smartphone or a computer, like this is incredibly, has been super helpful and has made things a lot easier, both for patients as well as for providers. But then again, obviously the challenge is that we know there's a digital divide. There are, you know, inequities in terms of digital access, digital literacy. So that's not the solution for everything, but I think it's a
5: positive step forward what do you think, not just from a kind of an HIV practitioner's perspective, you know, needs to happen at the national level? Like, what do you want to see out of this new CDC leadership and, and what thoughts might you have from a, a global level too?
9: Yeah, no, it's it's super exciting seeing the CDC promote evidence-based public health interventions is incredibly important. And so I think the work that they have done thus far has been really, I think, really important in terms of gaining the confidence of the public. I think what we've seen happen also is, I guess, early on in the pandemic, right, the sidelining of the CDC, but really having President Biden and his administration leverage and utilize the expertise that's there. From a global health perspective, just thinking about COVID-19, you know, just ensuring that we understand the ways in which we are interconnected, but we need to understand that Many people in low-income and middle-income countries have not seen a vaccine rollout yet and are going to be neglected or left at the sidelines as some of more wealthier countries are rolling out with a vaccine. But the reality is that, we know, COVID-19 and the virus know no boundaries, know no borders. And so we need to make sure that not just because we fear that we could also be infected, but just out of humanity that we want to make sure that everyone's taken care of. So I think I would love to see that. And I think I've seen the Biden administration. I read something recently about an investment in like a global, a fund to ensure access to the vaccine for lower income countries. But I think that needs to also be a priority for us.
5: It has been surprising to me how many people seem to think HIV AIDS was like 20th century, right? Like, oh, that's such old news. It was terrible, but it's, it's not really an issue. What more do you think those of us who, who care about public health and who care about health equity can do to try to ensure that more people understand that HIV AIDS very much remains a, a public health issue, that very much kind of HIV positive people deserve to be listened to, and we collectively deserve a real response to both protect people in the future and, and continuing to treat people today?
9: You know, I think that obviously with this pandemic, a lot of the attention that had previously been on HIV obviously has gone away. But I think we need to understand the ways in which many of the same structural drivers and social determinants health that have placed communities at risk for COVID-19 are some of the very similar systems that have created these inequities in terms of HIV and allow the HIV epidemic to persist and to continue. I think we need to understand the ways in which policy level, for instance, Medicaid expansion, how something like that is one way of, of actually helping people living with HIV. You know, for instance, the South has become the new epicenter for HIV in the United States. I think there are seven states in the South that have not expanded Medicaid, but we know that Medicaid is one of the main providers of health care to people living with HIV So to the extent possible, people who care about public health, care about people living with HIV, that we realize how these policy level issues can either reverse or perpetuate the epidemic and really advocate to the extent that they can on local, state or federal level.
5: What do you think we need to help people understand that our history is still very present with us, especially in public health?
9: I do think that because there's been obviously this sort of awakening that many people have had about inequities and the drivers of health inequities, now is a time where we need to really begin to really start taking action. And I know at the New York City Health Department, our former health commissioner, Mary Bassett, actually launched an initiative called Race to Justice, which was really about bringing discussions of racism to the fore and really understanding how racism impacts health outcomes and how we need to change the way that we do our work at the health department so I think sort of broad initiatives like that can be helpful and then obviously in education in schools wherever possible this communicate this information around structural drivers inequities can really be shared in a way that is is understandable by folks in a way that actually motivates them to want to have change
5: is understandable in the sense of hopefully then not only motivates them Dr Blackstock but where they feel responsible and where we feel responsible.
9: Definitely, I think I think if we're not working to dismantle these systems, we are complicit in them. Folks need to also understand the ways in which they are responsible for enacting change.
5: Dr. Blackstock, thank you so much for your time today. I'm incredibly grateful.
9: You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me on.
5: You can learn more about Dr. Blackstock's work in the organization she created, Health Justice, at healthjustice.co or follow her at Oni Blackstock. So much of the history of the HIV AIDS crisis has been characterized by indifference, ignorance, and stigma. We've lost millions of people around the world who would be alive today if different decisions had been made at different junctures, including by our own government. And yet, as we heard from our guests today, when activists bravely set out to change the public perception of the virus, they did. Though the work isn't done. We have so much more to do to expand access to good HIV AIDS care and build truly more equitable public health and healthcare systems. Doing that will require more resources across science and medicine alongside political will. There's a saying in public health that outbreaks are inevitable, but epidemics aren't. We are not passive to germs. And I certainly hope that we can learn from our mistakes and our successes in confronting HIV and AIDS to help improve our ongoing response to COVID-19. Stigma is deadly, racism is deadly, inequity is deadly, but we can confront them and do better as we've heard from all of our guests today. They have done that and so much more. I hope that you will follow them, learn more about their work and support them. Thank you for joining In Fact. In Fact is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Erica Goodmanson, Lauren Peterson, Kathy Russo, Julie Subrin and Justin Wright, with help from the Hidden Light team of Barry Lurie, Sarah Horowitz, Nikki Huggett, Emily Young, and Huma Abedin, with additional support from Lindsay Hoffman. Original music is by Justin Wright. If you liked this episode of In Fact, please make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode, and tell your family and friends to do the same. If you really want to help us out, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.
2: No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.
6: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake Kits... LED headlights, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
3: Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring?